Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and the arts. The topic for today is food porn. Our speaker is Rebecca Halpern, who is the writer and director of a new documentary film entitled Love Charlie that will be released in theaters and available for streaming on Apple and Amazon beginning on November 18th. The film is about the life of top chef Charlie Trotter, who revolutionized American cuisine. Charlie was a creative genius who used different 10-course menus each day for 25 years. He introduced us to Farm to Table, placed tables in the restaurant kitchen, and eliminated hard liquor and foie gras from the menu. Charlie Trotter influenced many of the top chefs of his generation and demanded excellence from everyone around him. Buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that's interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so we can continue to enjoy this content. All right, let's start with Rebecca's opening remarks. My name is Rebecca Halpern. I'm a documentary filmmaker. My latest film and directorial debut, Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter, will be released November 18th in select theaters and on demand on Apple and Amazon. Why is Charlie Trotter important? Chef Charlie Trotter reimagined American cuisine and made Chicago the culinary capital that it is today. For 25 years, Charlie and his team improvised 10-course tasting menus, never serving the same dish twice. He's credited with inventing microgreens, taking vegetarianism mainstream, and being the first American chef to put a table in his kitchen. He's also the godfather of food porn, thanks to his groundbreaking style of photography, which he used in more than 14 cookbooks. Charlie's obsession with exceptional ingredients and his exacting management style drew ambitious chefs from all over the globe to his door. His flock of trainees have become the who's who of the culinary world. So why make this movie? Charlie Trotter rose to prominence in the pre-social media era. His legacy stands to be lost to time. Relatively few people know anything about him. I grew up in Chicago in the late 1980s and 90s, and there were three giants who ruled the city, Michael Jordan, Oprah Winfrey, and Charlie Trotter. My mom was a food critic and often would talk about Charlie Trotter like he was some kind of unicorn who was born to revolutionize the culinary world. So when I was approached to direct this doc, knowing only the media's caricature of him as a trailblazing but tyrannical perfectionist, I wanted to learn more about who he was, what made him tick, what drove his relentless pursuit of excellence, and what happened to him that ultimately made him flame out so spectacularly at the end. What can we learn from Chef Trotter's story? Francis Ford Coppola does an interesting exercise for each film he directs. He boils the essence of the movie down to one word. So for The Godfather, that word was succession. In doing the same exercise with Love, Charlie, the word that we landed on was identity. Before he opened the restaurant, everyone in Charlie's life called him Chuck. He was a fun-loving dreamer whose passion knew no bounds. Over the course of his career, Chuck gave way to Chef Charlie Trotter, his professional persona, with devastating consequences. This is not a film about food. It's a cautionary tale about what happens when a person's identity becomes consumed by their work. 
There's an organizational psychologist named Adam Grant who recently posted a quote on Instagram that I thought really resonated with the film. He said that asking kids, what do you want to be when you grow up, sends the wrong message about work. He said, we should teach kids that who you are is more important than what job you do, that work is an activity. It doesn't have to define your identity. And I think Chef Trotter's story is a perfect example of what can happen when it does. You said that Charlie reimagined food photography in his 14 cookbooks. What did he do that was new? Before Charlie Trotter, cookbooks were very much an instructional manual on how to put a dish together. Very few illustrations, detailed instructions, not a lot of philosophy or the why behind a recipe exists. Charlie Trotter created coffee table cookbooks where his photography super intimate and up close with the food was revolutionary. It changed the way cookbooks were published. From that point forward now, there hasn't been a chef that's put out a cookbook that doesn't look like one of Charlie Trotter's cookbooks. Charlie also went deep on the philosophy, the why behind his recipes. And as Grant Ackett says in the film, Grant Ackett's being the chef of Alinea, which is a three Michelin star winning restaurant, It was almost as if he could read and think about how the food would taste just from Charlie's cookbooks. And that's something that you didn't see before. And now it's ubiquitous. In the film, you interview several important chefs of the Chicago food scene, including Grant Achetz. Grant describes an experience where he mishandles some peaches and Charlie berates a colleague for allowing Grant to do this, making Grant feel even worse. Why did you choose to include that scene, and what does it illustrate about Charlie Trotter's management style? I'd like to back up for a second and talk about how Grant found himself at the restaurant. Grant fell in love with Charlie Trotter because of his cookbooks. It was through his cookbooks that Charlie Trotter seduced not just Grant, but hundreds of aspiring young chefs. And Grant, at that time, had a very contentious relationship with his own father and was looking for a sort of mentor figure, someone that he could look up to. And his hope was that Charlie Trotter would be that person. When he got into the restaurant, he quickly realized that Charlie was not the warm and fuzzy mentor type that he was hoping for. Instead, he was a driven, relentless taskmaster. He didn't understand that maybe you just needed coaching or a softer hand, or he didn't really care about what he could do to get you to do your best. Sometimes it was manipulative and sometimes it was toxic. But to those people who stuck with him, who saw the world the same way he did, they had remarkably wonderful experiences. So I think it's a two-sided coin. Rebecca and I both went to Neutral High School in Winneka, Illinois, as did Charlie Trotter. It's a powerhouse. How do you think the Neutral experience affected Charlie Trotter's path? Nutrier is called the Harvard of high schools, and I think anyone who went there found that their time at Nutrier was infinitely harder than their undergraduate career at any school they went to. The expectations that were heaped on all of us were huge. Every kid that goes to Nutrier has a leg up on most every other kid in the world. Charlie was viewed as an entitled, young, white, privileged male whose father bankrolled him before he had any real work experience. 
Luckily, he had this incredible, amazing talent. But when he told his parents he wanted to be a chef, they were like, what? You want to go into the service industry? You are an artist when you are at the level of Charlie Trotter. And I think he viewed it that way. Charlie may have been entitled because his dad bankrolled his restaurant opening. But amazingly, he convinced his dad to work as his operations manager and his mother to work the coat check before he promoted her to hostess. I want to turn next to Michael Jordan in my favorite scene from the ESPN documentary, The Last Dance. In it, Jordan has been pushing his players as hard as possible to maximize their performance, and his teammates conclude that he was a complete asshole. We had producer Michael Tallinn on the podcast, and I asked him what was the most important scene in that 10-part documentary, and he said the end of Act 2. I asked MJ the question, was there a personal cost for being such an asshole? And Jordan became so emotional that he had to stop filming. Why do these incredible performers, the best in their respective field, think they need to be an asshole to inspire excellence, especially when it comes to such a high personal cost? I think when you are blessed with the kind of talent that Michael Jordan or Charlie Trotter had, you develop a sense of entitlement that everyone around you who's in your orbit should have that same level of talent and that same dedication to excellence. Charlie Trotter is often mistaken for a perfectionist. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, he thought perfection was boring. Perfection is about the outcome. Excellence is about the process. He felt that how you closed a cabinet door, how you took out the trash, how you set a table, how you did your mise en place, how you made a piece of fish, how you delivered it to the table. Every element of the process required the same level of care. He had dishwashers who ascended to the top of the food chain in his restaurant. Why? Because they demonstrated a certain level of care in what they were doing. You know, we called the film Love Charlie for a reason. For Charlie, the quest for excellence, that relentless level of care that he poured into everything he did was his idea of what love was. That was love. And I think that quest for excellence, anyone who's gotten really good at anything in life, who's spent 10,000 hours doing anything, you don't become great at something because you don't care. You have to pour attention into every single detail. I used to play competitive golf. I understand what it means to care as much about the blade of grass that your ball is sitting on as the wind that's blowing and what the golf course layout is like. And course management is part of it. I have to care about my golf shoes, make sure there's nothing stuck under my cleats. I have to make sure that my glove fits me perfectly so that my grip every time I grab the club is the same. I want to make sure that my irons are clean so that within each groove, there's not a piece of grass or anything that could influence the way the ball spins coming off the club face. That's care. That's excellence. Michael Jordan, demanding that people show up and be excellent every day in everything they did. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't. And people who aren't as excellent when they are challenged to be more excellent don't like it a lot of times. And they resent that. In Charlie's case, there were people in his orbit who 
he pushed too far and they resented him for it. In your film, you show Charlie's funeral. The church packed with former customers, co-workers, and other top chefs. Sure, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but many people there loved him because he pushed them to be their best selves. Getting people to do their best, especially if they were on board with his approach, he derived a great deal of satisfaction out of that. But ultimately, I don't think it was about them ever. It was always about him and his restaurant, and what he was striving for. Charlie Trotter was a narcissistic, self-centered guy who did a lot of what he did so that the shine would come back on him. One of Charlie's claims to fame was his daily, never-repeated 10-course tasting menu that showed his creativity. In contrast, other great chefs create a spectacular dish and then repeat it to highlight their strengths, not Charlie. He wanted to show you each day he could do something different that was amazing. Why did he do that? I think it's partly showing off. I think it's partly a love of improvisation. He loved jazz. And I think it was also partly about challenging his staff to stay on their toes and be fresh. When you're a fine painter and you squeeze a tube of paint, you know what color is coming out of that tube. You know the consistency, the texture, the weight. You know exactly how to use it on the canvas. Food, cuisine, at the level that Charlie was cooking is infinitely more difficult because you're dealing with ingredients that are completely out of your control. There is no tube of paint that you can squeeze and guarantee you're going to get the same exact texture, flavor, scent out of every time. The improvisation for Charlie is all the more impressive when you think about these factors that the ingredients that he was using, his tools, every time he opened his toolkit, he never knew what he was going to get. If he got a batch of bad red peppers, for example, he's just not going to use the red peppers. He'll find something else. He thrived on that. He also was the only chef who served only wine. And it wasn't like he did wine pairings. He designed his dishes around the flavor, the immutable flavor of the wine. You can't change the way wine tastes, but you can change a dish to satisfy the wine. And so his relationships with his sommeliers were very close for that reason. Charlie wrote a book about serving wine with food. He also announced a great fanfare that he was going to remove liquor and hard alcohol from his restaurant. Why did he do that? It was another way for Charlie Trotter to show off and be different. He loved to be considered an enigma. He loved it when people didn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. Going strictly to wine, not only did it help complement his food and create a better dining experience, which was completely in his control. I mean, when you're doing a 10-course tasting menu with few deviations, you are in command of the conversation. It's not a conversation so much as it is a monologue, necessarily, that you're listening to from the chef. I mean, that's what it is. Charlie had nothing to lose. He had a rich dad who bankrolled his restaurant. If he wanted to do only wine, he could do only wine. If he wanted to put a table in the kitchen, he could put a table in the kitchen. If he wanted to treat people like crap, he did it how he wanted to do it. Chef Charlie Trotter becomes more and more consumed by that, that level of corruption of thinking he can get away with anything, he can do anything he wants just kind of grew almost out of control. Burger King makes the customer the decision maker. 
have it your way, but not Charlie Trotter. He did not offer an a la carte menu. He decided what you're going to eat tonight, just like if you go to the symphony, the conductor decides what gets played. He viewed the customer as secondary relative to his own vision of what food should be. How do you think about Charlie's overbearing paternalistic attitude towards the customer's culinary experience? I mean, that was part of his philosophy, right? Nobody crowdsources a skyscraper when they're thinking of designing one. It's the vision of the architect. He was a control freak. He wanted things to be exactly how he wanted them to be, and he viewed himself as an artist, and he was well within his right to do that. Next topic is Charlie's health. He had several minor strokes. His doctors told him that his health was failing. And in the film, you made it seem that his work was killing him on the one hand, but not working was a death sentence. How do you think about Charlie's choices at the end of his life? He did drive himself so hard that he ended up killing himself. I also think that he made choices that ultimately led to his own demise, or at least where he threw up his hands and said, listen, what will be, will be. Doctors told him not to fly because of his inoperable brain aneurysm. And he made the choice to fly and he flew to Wyoming and the next morning was found dead on the couch by his son. So it was like he was playing Russian roulette at the end there. I feel for Charlie Trotter because I know what it's like to become addicted to that, to the detriment of your own personal life, of your relationships, of your own health. And when it came time to just be Chuck again, he couldn't do it. Let's talk about Charlie's first wife, Lisa, who plays such an important role in the movie. She had a chance to go to law school and follow her career, but Charlie persuades her to abandon her dreams and adopt his. Charlie becomes consumed by his restaurant, and that's the kiss of death for the marriage. What do you think about their relationship, and what does it show about Charlie? It requires a team to get across the finish line. Lisa, I wanted to really give her her due for helping open the restaurant, helping shape his vision, helping him to explode onto the scene the way he did. Their relationship suffered. You're obsessed with your career. Things are going to fall by the wayside. So in terms of his weakness, I think it was a foretelling of what was to come for him. They broke up a couple of years after the restaurant opened, and he immediately remarried a woman who was working for him named Lynn. And the two of them, Lisa and Lynn, could not have been more different. Lisa was much more intellectual, whereas Lynn, she's got this big blonde hair and she's glamorous and had this kind of like movie star looks to her. He was trying to control his image and he picked his leading lady in that moment. Let's move to the Charlie Trotter brand. The first time I heard about Charlie Trotter was when he opened that shop next door to his restaurant which sold various Charlie Trotter goods like smoked salmon and other dishes. You can still get his smoked salmon, by the way, at Whole Foods, and it's actually insanely good. I'm on that. I moved back to Chicago in 1999 when Charlie Trotter was still the restaurant king of Chicago. Trotter then opens up franchises in Las Vegas and Mexico, and they're not successful. What did he do wrong? He believed in his brand so much that there was absolutely no flexibility. In other words, his restaurants in Vegas failed. Why? Because they want to turn tables in Vegas. They want people to be gambling for as long as possible. So a meal that lasts three hours is sort of a non-starter for a casino operator. But Charlie Trotter refused to budge. He was going to open a restaurant at Time Warner in Columbus Circle, 
And they wanted him to move in a more fast, casual kind of a direction. And he refused because it wasn't his brand. That hurt him only insofar as his inability to scale up. But it wasn't a bad thing necessarily. If you are known for one thing and you do that one thing really well, you should stick to that one thing. His TV show, People Loved It. The reason he didn't become a Food Network star was because Charlie Trotter is not Emerald. He's not as charismatic. He's not as telegenic and he's not as pleasant to watch. He has this elitist vibe to him that for the masses, I don't think appeals. He started to get stretched thin and didn't have the business infrastructure. His dad was gone. He didn't have anyone really in his court giving him great advice on how to scale up in that way. And also, he wanted three Michelin stars. That was his lifelong goal. Your art will suffer if you don't have the right infrastructure in place and if you can't let go and delegate properly. I would like to play a clip now from your film, Love, Charlie. Chicago was almost any restaurant that was considered good was French. And the owners of the French restaurants did not appreciate this young whippersnapper coming in there, getting all this press for what they didn't believe in. It had to be French or it was nothing. I think we just caught ourselves looking at each other and just in disbelief. People believe in him too, just like us. And it was pretty crazy. And I have to say, I didn't ever think it would explode the way it did. I'll be honest with you, I was, I was oblivious. I never dreamed of anything like that. I mean, we were trying to ju just do the best we could do and use the most pristine and pure product we could get our hands on. In the 1980s, French high-end cooking was the rage. Julia Child introduced French cuisine to the American public through television in a way that amused, surprised, and beloved her audience. Charlie learns about French techniques that rely heavily on cream and butter. Tell us about Charlie's decision to follow a completely new direction that becomes nouveau American cuisine. He certainly introduced a new style of American cuisine. They hardly used any cream or butter in his cooking. He was a huge proponent of vegetarianism and vegetable-only menus. In fact, he offered two 10-course tasting menus. One was a meat menu and the other was a vegetable menu. He felt that vegetables deserved just as much attention as any kind of beef or poultry or fish. What was interesting was Charlie's trip to Europe didn't last very long. And he was like backpacking through Europe, eating at very fancy restaurants, leaving his backpack up with the maitre d'. And look at what he was able to absorb and synthesize. Charlie Trotter was in his early 20s, didn't have hardly any work experience, certainly very little formal training. It's pretty remarkable what he was able to take and borrow from the French and then make his own. I would like to play a second clip from the film. Here we have Wolfgang Puck and Emeril talk about what made Charlie Trotter's methods so innovative. Charlie was really a control freak. He actually financed his own cookbooks. He financed his restaurant. He financed everything. Why? Because that way he didn't have to answer to anybody. He could do exactly the way he wanted to do it. Whatever he did was really first class. Whatever he did was really an image of himself. When Charlie did a book, he pulled this snapshot out of his brain. You know, that's, that was his inner vision. 
you could see everything so amazingly. Every bean in the tomato or the turnip or the radish, that at that time was really revolutionary because nobody did food photography like that. Rebecca, tell us about Charlie's concept of farm-to-table cuisine. Charlie Trotter made a concerted effort to build relationships with purveyors in ways that other chefs weren't. Not only was he seeking them out in order to procure the best foodstuffs that they had to offer, but he was working with them to create the kinds of vegetables that he wanted to put on the plate. There's a chef in Ohio named Farmer Lee Jones, who he worked with very closely. He called him up one day and said he was tired of salad greens. What can we do next? And together they innovated microgreens, which are ubiquitous now. There's microgreens on burgers. There's microgreens in salads. They use them as garnish on desserts. I mean, everyone uses microgreens. That was revolutionary about Charlie's approach to the farm-to-table movement. Let's talk about food critics. You mentioned your mother was a food critic, but the world shifted away from food critics to recommendations by ordinary customers with the Zagat Guide and now with Yelp and Open Table Reviews. How do you think about the demise of the food critic and their role in determining taste? I always laugh whenever anyone I'm going out to dinner with asks the waiter, what's good here? First of all, you've never met this waiter you don't know if you share the same taste as this waiter. The waiter could be telling you what's the most popular thing on the menu, but who's to say that any of those people share your same tastes? I don't know that the food critic necessarily serves a purpose, at least not a constructive one. My mom was a food writer. If she had a bad experience at a restaurant, she just wouldn't write about that restaurant and give it any shine. And I think that's great. Celebrate excellence and the rest, they'll find their own future their own way you know they'll either go away or they'll stick around but whatever it's not for her to say there is a place for food criticism just like there's a place for art criticism people who write about food in the same way that art critics write about art where it looks at the body of work of this one chef and where are they today versus where they started I think some food criticism, while warranted, is also just about creating news where there isn't news to be created and looking for eyeballs and it's clickbait, frankly. What did Charlie Trotter think about publicity? You mentioned in the film that he got lured into making outrageous statements, but that always seems to help his brand. Is there no such thing as bad publicity? He did call Rick Tremano, who is the other top chef in Chicago, fat and threatened to eat his liver. I mean, he didn't have to do that. All press is good press, especially when there are people nipping at your heels and you want to stay ahead of them. There was a kind of tenor to the coverage of Charlie Trotter at that scene, very much like the media and others in the city were looking to take him down. It was pretty egregious in some respects. That was a kind of journalism that I don't believe in, which is this gotcha journalism where you're looking for people at their worst. The way the media treated him, it was just painful to watch. The next topic is the art of documentary filmmaking. You foreshadowed Charlie's death. 
What did you conceive of the documentary's narrative arc? I love telling true stories because they write themselves. And in Charlie's case, there was such a strong beginning, middle, and end that to take it apart just didn't make sense because it was so compelling and strong as it was, it didn't need to be messed with. And it's funny because that's one of the driving philosophies behind Charlie Trotter's cuisine. The ingredients should speak for themselves. In the making of The Last Dance, ESPN sent a video crew to tape the Bulls behind the scenes for an entire season. So there was a lot of archival footage. They also had interviews with Phil Jackson, Scottie Pippen, Steve Kerr, Dennis Rodman, Carmen Electra, and of course, Michael Jordan. For Love, Charlie, you obviously got a huge amount of archival footage and interviews with people who were close to him, but you didn't have Charlie Trotter himself. How do you deal with that limitation? Archival footage is everything, especially when you start production on day one of a global pandemic. There was so much we wanted to do and accomplish that we couldn't because we couldn't get groups of people together to do a shoot. So the archival footage really saved us. One of the criticisms that we got about the film was that you didn't get to see Chef Trotter cooking enough in the kitchen. First of all, Chef Trotter didn't really cook all that much. He was more of a dictator who told people what to do and they all executed his vision. We got lucky because we had 350 postcards that he had written to Lisa, his first wife, when he was formulating his vision and basically scripting his whole life story before he lived it. That really helped because we could lean into the visuals of those postcards to help augment the story. What I've learned from my experience making this podcast, What Happens Next, is the critical role of editing and crafting a narrative. Tell me about your editing process for this documentary film. In our case, because it's a past tense story, we were able to write it before we went into edit. The thing that was most important about the edit is the use of visual metaphors. It was very important to me that we represented what Charlie's inner life or inner thoughts were and his philosophies in ways that weren't so on the nose. So for example, one of our interviewees said that he always felt like time was shorter for himself. So what do we show? We show one of the postcards that he wrote that happened to be Salvador Dali's melting clocks. And that was a good visual metaphor for what he was feeling for time in those moments. So I needed an editor who thought in that same way. I also wanted an editor who really understood nuance and would be able to find those moments when Charlie was looking at the camera or thinking where it caught him off guard. There was a moment when my editor and I both literally jumped for joy on Zoom because we had 16 millimeter home video footage that Charlie Trotter's family had shot of Chuck as a teenager doing a gymnastics routine. And there's a moment in the film when we talk about his pursuit of excellence and he says that he's dyslexic and he can't function unless everyone in the kitchen is moving in the same direction. We layered in that clip of him doing his gymnastics routine. Not only was it a visual metaphor for the precision and the excellence and the care that he needed to pour into everything that he did, but it also happened to just fit perfectly in timing wise in that little section to cover what we were hearing. To me, that's great storytelling. You know, a lot of true crime these days on television is just very, very literal What you're hearing people say is what you're seeing on the screen, and it's mindless. 
it's almost as if you could turn the visuals off and just listen to a podcast. Same thing, right? You, you're, you're, I really wanted to tell a deeper story visually so that the audience could engage with it intellectually. Somebody once said to me, you know, well, I'm going to rent this at home and I'm going to stop it 50 times so that I can read everything that's on there. And I thought, you know what? Great. Do that. Engage with the film like that. That's a very Charlie Trotter kind of a thing to do. And so the edit was extremely important in terms of the overall vision and style of the film. Prior to Love, Charlie, you did true crime shows. And this movie feels like a true crime related documentary. Charlie's dead. Who done it? The hallmarks of true crime, red herrings, these twists and turns where you think it's one person, but it's really another person, or where things are revealed over time, it's a really great proving ground for a storyteller. I took this true crime approach to Charlie's life and story. I mean, he was very enigmatic also, and maybe he was also the perpetrator as much as he was a victim. What are your hopes for this film? The whole point of making this movie is so that Charlie's legacy is remembered. He deserves to have a place in the pantheon of great American chefs. I want people to be inspired. Charlie's favorite quote was, after love, there's only cuisine. How many of us can say, after love, there's only filmmaking. After love, there's only finance. After love, there's only whatever. Because they've devoted themselves a million percent to this one pursuit without any balance in their lives. It's going to open up a lot of conversations around mental health and balance in the workplace. I'm moving into directing more full-time now, and this is my debut feature. I'm hoping that it will lead to more opportunities to tell other great stories that require nuanced and sophisticated storytelling. Rebecca, in each episode, I end on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic that people are going to watch this movie and come away feeling like they want to apply a new level of excellence to their own lives. That even though it's a cautionary tale and it's sad and you see the cost of pursuing excellence relentlessly, there is something really inspiring about seeing someone caring so much about what they do. Thanks, Rebecca, for joining us today. Rebecca's film, Love, Charlie, is now showing in select theaters and can be seen on the streaming platforms Amazon and Apple. If you missed last week's session about game theory and sports, please check it out. Our first guest was Stanford economics professor Paul Oyer, who wrote the book, An Economist Goes to the Game, How to Throw Away $580 Million and Other Surprising Insights from the Economics of Sports. Paul discussed which sports your kids should play, why South Koreans dominate women's golf, And how does game theory inform us about whether Michael Jordan should take that last shot or pass the ball to another player? Our second speaker was University of Michigan economist Stefan Zemanski, who wrote Soccernomics. Our discussion focused on the economics of all things soccer, including why European soccer owners lose money and why do players at certain soccer positions make most of the money. Next week, we will discuss CRISPR and the ethics of genetic engineering of embryos. Our speakers will include Stanford law professor Hank Greeley, who wrote the book CRISPR, People, the Science and Ethics of Editing Humans. We also welcome back Jacob Appel for his third appearance on What Happens Next. Jacob is a medical ethicist at Mount Sinai Medical School, and Jacob will give us an ethical framework to evaluate human testing. 
Genetic engineering on babies is coming. Now what? You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.